0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: There isn't a choice. Wild weather in Canada linked to climate change has taken that away from so many. Cutting emissions is key to a safer, healthier future. But it's time right now to talk about how to adapt to extreme rain, wildfire, wind and rapidly melting ice. Ottawa has sketched out what that may look like. It will be expensive to reinforce buildings, protect nature, safeguard people's health and well-being, and more. There isn't a choice, but the people we're talking to today say there is a way forward. Also, next time you see a drone in the sky, it might just be helping to plant a forest. Three young international students on climate change here and in their home countries and finding the hope in the aftermath of the COP27 talks in Egypt. It's there, you just have to look for it. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Adjust, revamp, reshape, reconstruct. Different ways to say Canada needs to adapt to climate change. Ottawa's new plan covers everything from creating flood maps to setting a goal of preventing all deaths from extreme heat by 2040. And it pledges $1.6 billion over five years to get started on that work. Cheryl Lee Harper advised on the strategy. Her focus was on how to protect Canadians' health from climate change. She is a Canada Research Chair in Climate Change and Health at the University of Alberta. Cheryl Lee, hello. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Um, Before we dive into the plan, I think it's probably a good idea to remind listeners of, of the ways that climate change affects the health of Canadians.
2: Yeah, let me set the stage for you. So we're seeing more extreme weather events, things like more wildfires, flooding. We're seeing increased heat waves. All of these things have a climate change signature in them, but we're also seeing these slower onset events. So things like sea level rise, ocean acidification, and just general temperature increase overall. And all of these things, of course, impact everything that we care about. They impact our culture, our livelihoods, our infrastructure, our economy, and they also impact our health. Um, They impact our health in a number of different ways. They impact our physical health. So things like during heat waves, experiencing heat stress, experiencing increased respiratory distress, but it also impacts our our mental health too. So going through some of these um, extreme events, having to be relocated, seeing the doom and gloom on the news all the time, all of those things also impact our mental health. So, you know, climate change is here and and we certainly need to curb our emissions, but we also need to adapt to some of these things that we've already been seeing in order to protect health and prevent um, illness and death. So for us in the health sector, there was a lot you know riding on this national adaptation strategy and both a lot of excitement for the national adaptation strategy to be released, but we were also really nervous to see what was in there, too.
1: So now you've seen what's in there, albeit um, only recently. Walk us through it. What is in it to protect Canadians' health?
2: Well, I mean, I think from a health perspective, um, it was really nice to see health really mainstreamed um, throughout the entire document. Less than 50% of countries internationally have um, a clear health thread in their national adaptation strategies. So this was really nice to see. Um, And we definitely saw a lot of the elements that our health advisory table had made recommendations. And we saw a lot of those taken up into the national adaptation strategy. So by 2030, there's an aim to increase climate health capacity. And this is really important because we need more climate health expertise in Canada. We need more climate change and health knowledge in Canada, Um, but we also need more climate change and health resources. The second objective that the strategy outlined um, was that health authorities need to be able to identify where their climate change vulnerabilities lie, but then also create adaptation plans on how they're going to respond to that and protect the public's health.
1: Can you give me, um, do you have a concrete example of what that actually means for, for, yes. for anybody, for me, if I need to go to a hospital, what what, what, do you, what does it mean?
2: Critically, it means that um, health authorities have to understand um, where they're vulnerable, where, where, the, where the gaps lie. Um, You know, for example, the heat dome that we experienced a year and a half ago. um, Health authorities have heat plans. Um, They have certain things that they know they need to do when the temperature hits a, a certain degree. There are certain public health resources that become available, cooling centers open, Public service announcements get announced about you know, checking in on your neighbor and, and so on and so forth. But with the heat dome, what we saw was a magnitude of increase that we had never experienced before and that we really weren't prepared for. So while public health authorities you know, were used to dealing with heat waves, we weren't used to dealing with extreme heat waves. And that's why we saw so many deaths happen in British Columbia. The heat plans that we have and that we're working with are really developed for a climate that no longer exists. Can we
1: stay with that? The effects of the extreme heat waves a little bit more because there's another goal that's listed here by 2040. Deaths due to extreme heat waves have been eliminated.
2: Does that sound doable or or not? It's doable if the resources are provided. Heat deaths are something that are generally completely preventable if we have a robust public health system and we have public health resources that are available, then we should be able to prevent all extreme heatwave-related um, deaths, absolutely. The question is, is you know, how are we going to get there by 2040? And is that is that soon enough, given that the climate change projections that we're facing?
1: The, the, there's the equity principle in all of this, too, because we know that vulnerable and marginalized communities are more likely to suffer um, health effects from, from climate change. Government has said it's
2: committed to that. What's an example of how that should happen? So the example from the extreme heat dome that we saw in British Columbia is a really good example. So we know that over 600 people died in British Columbia in June 2021 during that heat wave. And we also know that about 67% were over the age of 70 years old. So more older people were impacted. We know that over half, about 56%, lived alone. Um, We also know that over half, about 61%, lived in low-income neighborhoods. So if you're someone that lives at the intersection of those pieces, the heat wave in 2021 impacted you more. We also know that climate change impacts the health of Indigenous people in an inequitable way. And we know that that's rooted in things like colonialism and inequity and racism and other injustices. And so it's really important that these groups are provided the opportunity to engage in this process. And really critically, I think it's important to mention that there were Indigenous experts on our panel from across the country who were Inuit, um, Métis and First Nations. Um, And we really emphasize the importance of self-determination in this process. So Indigenous people doing their own assessment, coming up with their own plans, their own adaptation strategies and implementing them, but having the support to do so. Um, and so I think that you see that weaved through. the national adaptation strategy, there is a focus on, Making sure that things like social inequities, gender, um, racism, intergenerational impacts, and and all these other things that are often rooted in colonialism and, and other inequities are, are taken into account. And those are really critical because if you don't address those underlying um, drivers of climate change vulnerability, then that can lead to maladaptation or adaptation strategies that we think are actually you know really good, but in the long term ultimately fail or create more vulnerability to climate change. So doing things like um, addressing food insecurity improving water quality and water supply in communities um, making sure that people have access to green space and blue spaces these are all really important things to do and and they ultimately um, improve health so there are things that we can do to address climate change within the health sector like you know during a heat wave opening up cooling stations passing it water checking on your neighbors all, all of these things um, but there's other, um, you know, underlying things that are equally important to address, um, like you know, making sure people have access to health services um, and and these under other uh, social determinants of health.
1: I just want to touch on on the mental health aspect of things. Um, we have seen communities deal with the trauma of of flooding. The the maps are supposed to help people learn how vulnerable their homes are in traditional territories. What do you think is needed to support not just the homes? but the livelihoods and the mental health of Canadians who who would suffer that kind
2: of uh, experience? This is something that our advisory table felt was critically important to consider. So often when we think about climate change impacts on health, people immediately think of the physical health impacts. But for us, it was really important to take a more holistic view of health. Um, And yeah, mental health is a big one. So there are things that we can do. We've seen examples in Australia during the Australian wildfires, the Australian government increased um, mental health services. They increased the number of hours that the call stations were open. They created special programs um, for youth related to mental health to help youth get through that time. So I want to come back to the money
1: again because the Insurance Bureau of Canada estimates $5.3 billion a year is needed to address the impacts of climate change in Canada but the government's adaptation plan is coming in at 1.6 billion in new funding as i said over 5 years and and it is saying that this is a down payment how far do you think that goes in actually protecting communities
2: I think that it's an important starting point, but I hope that the adaptation strategy provides the funding mechanism um, that the federal government can continue to invest in that. The national adaptation strategy clearly indicates that for every dollar we invest in climate change adaptation, we see a return on investment of anywhere from you know $10 to $15. So we know that um, investing in adaptation is, is a good investment, and the national adaptation strategy sort of outlines or provides that framework of how the government could invest to make a more resilient Canada. So
1: the work hasn't ended. The work has just begun, hasn't it?
2: (laughs) The work has absolutely just begun. And, you know, there's even a timeline showing um, the importance of, you know, this is the plan, but we need to move into implementation. And in the document, it outlines that implementation starts next year. So you know it's it's my hope that we'll see that happening right away, like right away in January, we see more investment made, we see you know these funding announcements that have already been made, we start to you know see those moving into action. And we don't suffer the fate that a lot of other national adaptation strategies around the world have faced where they're stuck in that planning stage. So moving into implementation is absolutely critical. And and hopefully Canada's in a good situation to do that and and that it's kickstarted by these initial funding announcements.
1: And we will keep watching as it goes along. Lee Harper, thank you. Thank you so much for covering this important story. And next, we're heading to a part of Canada facing the challenge of adapting to climate change. That's the sound of the St. Lawrence River. It is the lifeblood of much of Ontario and Quebec, relied on for shipping, tourism, drinking water, and electricity generation. For decades, it's been taken for granted as just a part of life. But climate change is threatening the stability of the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence River. One region of eastern Ontario in particular is already seeing water levels seesaw more than ever before. CBC reporter Jayla Bernstein visited the township of South Stormont to understand the impacts and learn how people hope to adapt. And she joins me now. Hi, Jayla. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Um, you recently got back from your visit to the that region in Ontario. Paint me a picture of it. What is it like?
3: This region, it's actually not too far from where I grew up uh, in eastern Ontario. It's A lot of flat farmland there, small villages, bungalows, dairy farms. Uh, When you're driving along what's called Highway 2 in the region, it would be normal to see cows grazing in a field. And then just beyond that, if you look into the distance, you'd see the St. Lawrence River. So it's really picturesque rural farm country. And I drove there from Montreal, so I headed upriver to visit people and businesses along this wider stretch of the St. Lawrence River called the Lake St. Lawrence. And on the way, I passed a bird sanctuary, I passed campgrounds, marinas. So this is really a place where the river is the lifeblood of the towns there, and it's key to the economy. And if you'll let me just give a quick history lesson here, the the communities in this region were really drastically changed in the late 1950s. So thousands of people were displaced to make way for the expansion of the St. Lawrence Seaway and a hydroelectric power dam. And we're going to hear more about that in a minute. But basically, several towns, now called the Lost Villages, were flooded so that commercial ships could bring their cargo further upstream and inland. And those flooded towns, you can think of them as Ontario's Atlantis, they're actually still there underwater in the river. And the old foundations, the roads, the old tree stumps, when water levels get really low, they are actually sometimes visible. You can see them poking out from the water. And they did that this summer. I uh, never
1: knew that. And I I lived in Ottawa for a long time and traveled down into that region many times. I never knew there was an Atlantis down there.
3: What what's, what's going on with the water levels? Yeah, so this year in the summer, South Stormont, this part of Ontario, they saw record-breaking low water levels. We're talking boats stuck high and dry on their lifts, like not even able to launch into the water. And of course, that's affecting residents in a really big way.
4: Well, I grew up in this area, so I've seen different uh, levels of fish all the way back the creek for the past 40, 50 years. Now what I see is this dry land, so it's quite devastating.
3: That's John Slider, and he grew up near what's called Hoople Bay. He moved away for his career, but he came back to the region for his retirement. And this bay near where he grew up on the St. Lawrence, it actually used to just be farmer's fields, but then it was flooded when that seaway was created and it became this fish sanctuary, this habitat, a a spawning area. But locals like him say it's actually disappearing. And to say that Slider is passionate about preserving that bay and the fish there would would be an understatement. He really cares about it, and he's the president of the Friends of Hoople Creek Society.
5: When I was a a young
4: child growing up on Hoople Creek, uh, way back north of here, uh, there was thousands of fish that used to go up the creek to spawn. It was a beautiful bay. My son kept a dock back there and a boat and we could go and actually boat across the bay and fish. And we would see large schools of gar pike. We would see large schools of different species of fish. Now, when I went back there this past summer, for example, it was nothing more than a field. As far as you could see is dry land. And I found a few uh, remnants of dead fish on the, on the banks.
1: Oh my, that, that sounds pretty devastating to him. H- have they seen water levels drop that low ever before?
3: Well, yeah, it's a trend locals say they've noticed in recent years. And Slater actually showed me drone footage from 2021. And I could see just mucky, muddy fields there where the bay would be normally. There was just no water, just rocks and some dead fish. And Slater told me it's hurting fishing too. Normally they have this annual walleye fishing tournament and his eyes just light up when he talks about it. But he says no one has caught walleye there in years. Now, of course, that could be caused by more than one thing, but Slater believes the fluctuating water levels do have something to do with it. It's interesting
1: because out here on the West Coast, we've we've had an impact of low water levels on uh, salmon trying to spawn because of the drought that we've been experiencing here. So it's it's certainly been linked in this area of the world. But for, for a waterfront community, there must be some other impacts from these low water levels. Who who, what else is suffering?
3: Well, boating is a big one, for sure. This past season, people couldn't get their boats in the water in August and September, except for maybe, you know, a kayak or a canoe. Uh, And then there are also fears that if someone from out of town manages to actually get their boat in the water when levels are really low, locals fear they could end up hitting an old foundation that they don't know is there, you know, part of one of those lost villages. Plus, another area that's hurting is tourism. So there's a campground in the region called the Riverside Cedar Campground. Uh, People booked waterfront cabins there this summer expecting, of course, Riverside. Uh, But late in the summer, that waterfront had just disappeared. Uh, and a spokesperson for the St. Lawrence Parks Commission told me it, it did affect their business.
1: I can bet somebody shows up expecting a certain kind of vacation, and what are they looking out on? Low water levels, no waterfront? My goodness. It is, though, normal to see some change in water levels, higher levels after the spring thaw, lower levels in the late summer and fall. But is there any sense
3: of why that seesawing seems to be getting worse? So there are a few viewpoints on that, and it depends who you ask. First, in terms of a big picture, what climate modelling tells us is that we can expect to see this sort of trend with more extremes. So in the case of the Great Lakes, that means we're more likely with climate change to see higher highs and lower lows. For instance, an extended period of time in the summer without rain would cause low levels, right? Or a long period with a lot of rain would cause more flooding. And I spoke with researchers at the River Institute about this. They study the St. Lawrence in that region, the life within it. And they say in recent years, the low water levels that happen normally late in the summer are occurring earlier and earlier in the season. And a way to picture the consequences of this is if you think of a measuring stick and the top is the highest water level we've ever seen in Lake Ontario, and the bottom is the lowest level ever recorded. The current gap there is about two meters, but if climate change continues, if the global average temperature changes by two degrees, that could go up to three meters. And that's how one water resources engineer I spoke with explained it to me, and we're gonna hear a little bit from him later.
1: Wow, that is pretty pretty amazing, another entire meter. Um, But are there other factors that could be contributing to these extremes?
3: What makes the St. Lawrence area particularly vulnerable to water level changes also has to do with the nearby Moses Saunders Power Dam. So first, just to understand how it works, you need to know that the water flows from west to east in this region. So out from Lake Ontario, down through the St. Lawrence River, past Montreal and out into the Atlantic Ocean. And the St. Lawrence Seaway Is this major shipping artery? And the dam allows water levels to be regulated in it so that ships can get through. There's this international panel called the International Joint Commission, or IJC, and it's in charge of managing when to let the water flow out and then when to hold back the flow. And caught in the middle of all of that is the Lake St. Lawrence and the people who live there. They're directly upstream of that dam. And so when the dam opens to let water, downstream their water levels drop. So that's why residents there say they feel like they're kind of the sacrificial lamb and they blame a lot of those issues on the dam itself.
0: This year was the worst I've ever seen it in the 20 years I've been here. Um, Yes we have seen low waters in the late fall uh, but not so much through the summer months.
3: That's Cliff Steinberg. I drove out to visit him where he lives on what's called Alt Island. And he has this lovely waterfront home overlooking the St. Lawrence. You can see the ships that pass through. You can actually see from his dock the old stumps in the river from those flooded lost villages if you look out. Uh, Now, Steinberg, he's also the president of his local community association, and he advocates for their interests to the IJC. Now, remember, that's the panel that manages the dam. And I chatted with him in his backyard along the shore where he told me he thinks that dam management is the problem.
0: Let's face the facts. The IJC cannot prevent the flooding on Lake Ontario. It's impossible. You know, when you consider the amount of water in the Great Lakes flowing down through into Lake Erie, into Lake Ontario, and then trying to filter that through this area. Picture uh, like a pulling the plug in a a bathtub with a four-inch running water into it. You're not gonna be able to do it, right? There's where a lot of different opinions come into play. What's your opinion? My opinion is, is I think it can be better managed to be, if you want my honest opinion. This area cannot go through another season like we did this year. It's gonna have a major effect on tourism. It's gonna have a major effect on all of us. You
1: can hear the wind going through his microphone That it's obviously windy by the river and there's all this geese around and then the reaction, you can certainly hear that frustration coming through in his voice. I'm wondering what the IJC says about how it could change how it operates the dam to give people like Cliff a break.
3: It's really complex. The thing is that this community is in the crosshairs of being vulnerable to climate change as well as water management by the dam. So there are these layers there. I'll let Frank Sigleniaks explain. He's a water resources engineer, and he's also the Canadian secretary of an advisory board for the International Joint Commission for Lake Ontario and the St. Lawrence River.
0: There's a finite amount of water. We We can't change that. The water that comes into the system, that's determined by Mother Nature. All we can do is we can change the regulation plan a little bit to try to balance it, and so that both sides of the dam will have as much benefit as we can with the water that we're given.
3: So he said if there isn't as much rain as normal in the summer and water in the Great Lakes is low, the dam could hold back that water and keep it higher for people upstream. But then that would mean risking really low water levels downstream in the Port of Montreal. And if they get too low, that risks shutting down the billion-dollar shipping industry, which obviously they don't want to do. Wow,
1: those are really big competing interests. I mean, these are people's lives and the way they live versus... really, really big industry, tough choices. So the dam is trying to regulate water level problems, but changing weather weather patterns, I can see, could be just putting a lot more pressure on that.
3: That's exactly it. And climate change layered on top of the dam fluctuations could really be magnifying the issues in this community. And residents may already be seeing that. The dam can control the flow of water to a certain point, but it's not a miracle worker. Now, all of that is part of why the dam's operation plan is under review right now. And one of the things that they're looking at is whether any adjustments can be made to adapt to climate change and balance things maybe a little bit better from upstream in Lake Ontario all the way downstream to Montreal.
1: And here we are talking about adaptation. <laughs> uh, but, but as we've heard from what you said already, it, this is just isn't an easy task. If climate change makes water levels fluctuate more, and this is... A new normal. How will people actually adapt?
3: One of the things that's being looked at is dredging. So digging up the river bottom near boat ramps and docks and marinas so that even if levels get really low, boats could ideally still get in and out. Um, that's also an option being proposed to save Hoople Bay, that that fish sanctuary. Also that campground I mentioned, they're in the middle of designing a major revitalization project. And one of the things they're looking at is how to adapt to changing water levels.
6: The St. Lawrence Parks Commission is a a good piece of the uh,
0: tourism industry in Eastern Ontario. I'm I'm optimistic that we've brought in some really good designers and engineers for this particular park. Nobody has a crystal ball, but uh, we're doing our best and we're listening to the experts.
3: So that's Mike Pratt there with the St. Lawrence Parks Commission, and he says there are a range of options they could be looking at from adapting boat ramps and docks to building even break walls to protect against erosion from those fluctuating water levels.
1: Boy, I've seen other projects like this around the world and it is tough. The the, the National Climate Adaptation Strategy, we're talking about this on the show, could that make a difference here?
3: Well, right now we only just know the broad strokes in terms of that new national strategy, but there is mention of new investment into infrastructure to build more climate resilient communities. But we'll have to wait and see what that means, if anything, for this specific region. A lot of the people I spoke with there who live in the area are hoping that dam management or various levels of government can step in to help preserve their way of life somehow. But at the same time, this part of eastern Ontario is a bit of a canary in the coal mine. All of the climate experts I've been speaking with say, look, if, if you're in a town on one of the Great Lakes or the St. Lawrence River, you should be preparing for a future with water levels that aren't as stable as they used to be.
1: Worth keeping an eye on, Jayla Bernstein. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Now we want to know how
1: your community is adapting to climate change. Our email is earth at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage. We would love to hear from you.
2: I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week,
0: we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language
2: in about 20 minutes. Find the dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. We've been talking about adaptation, trying to prepare for the worst impacts of climate change. But what happens to vulnerable countries after they're hit by storms, heat waves, and floods? That's the problem a new international loss and damage fund is supposed to tackle. But in reality, there's no fund yet. And some are wary about the deal reached at the climate summit in Egypt to create one. Adil Najum has been tracking global climate pledges for decades... He's the dean of the Frederick S. Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. Hello. Hi. This fund comes after decades of calls from developing nations. Why do you think it actually happened this year?
4: Uh, You are right. It does come after decades of call, but those calls were totally unheeded. And I think they would have been equally unheeded this year, except that we've just had this sort of avalanche of climate impacts around the world. Um, heat waves in Europe, fires in California and Australia, drought in Africa. And to top it, then, there was the flood in Pakistan, which was this very visual, very large, very sustaining reminder of what climate impacts looked like. And the timing of that made it so that you could no longer ignore the climate impact issue. Uh, an issue that the cops have consistently wanted to ignore, uh, not not out of ill will, but out of this belief that we must focus everything right now on cutting emissions and impacts will come later. Well, later came. And that is what changed, I think, or that is at least partly what changed the dynamic so that the issue couldn't be ignored anymore.
1: What exactly does that, that final COP agreement say about loss and damage?
4: Nothing much, nothing much, except that the issue is real, except that the issue is here. Uh, There is really nothing operational in there. I'm not trying to be a cynic, but if you read the agreement, the only operational clause in that is that they agreed to formulate a transitional committee. So they set up a committee that will now look into what a fund might look like who would contribute, how would they contribute, how would it be spent, who, what would it be spent on. And this committee has been asked to talk it over over the next year and come to the next COP, COP 28, which will be in Dubai, to present its findings. And then the COP will start deliberating upon it again.
1: I hear you when you say you're not cynical But you did have a little laugh there when you were talking about what had been agreed to. And I'm wondering about that transitional committee. We don't I don't think we know who's going to be on it. Um, But uh, what are you looking
4: for from that committee? So on this, I will be a little cynical. Uh, We kind of know who will be on it. You know, they have one paragraph of what, that there will be a committee, and then they have two pages on what type of countries and what the composition will be and who the secretariat will be. My favorite clause, and I'm being entirely cynical here, is that the committee will, it will depend on how much budget they can get from the secretariat. It's always the money, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, they, they haven't even given a budget to the committee and they'll say its work will be curtailed by how much money the secretariat can come up with. And that will be partly the first test. I think the first test will be not who's on the committee, but is it a committee that really is set up to bring about something big? Or is it a committee that is brought about to sort of park the issue? All right, well, let's set
1: aside any skepticism or cynicism for just a second. And I want you to tell me, In the ideal world, what would be in the funding agreement? What details would it have?
4: Oh, in the very ideal world, this fund would be about climate justice. The idea is that those whose inordinately high emissions cause climate impacts on those whose emissions haven't caused the problem have a responsibility to assist in Managing the damage, right? My car hits your home. I have responsibility to fix your home, right? That's the idea of climate justice. Now, in an ideal world, that would be the structure of the fund that it would be a mechanism whereby those whose emissions are high, countries or individuals, get to pay and pay for the damages caused to those whose emissions are low. Now, that sounds simple, but We don't have a history as humans of doing justice very well. So in an ideal world, it would be some sort of a justice uh, framework, meaning reparations, meaning responsibility. None of that is at all hinted in what was agreed. What was agreed was that it would probably be some sort of a voluntary fund, meaning coming not out of my responsibility, to meet those damages, but by goodwill, by humanitarian impulse to help. And therefore, countries might voluntarily put in money or create mechanisms, and then it would be voluntarily given out to some countries or some situations, which raises a different set of issues. Who gets to put the money in, and more importantly, who gets to get some of that support. And that creates a whole new set of politics.
1: But well, do you think there's there needs to be some sort of um, section in, in uh, a funding arrangement that compels wealthier higher emitting countries to pay into the fund?
4: At some point, I think they will have to be. The problem partly is that the impacts happen both to the emitting countries as well as to those who didn't cause the problems. So the floods in Pakistan is a simple case, simpler case, because here is a country and here is a set of people that had very little to do with it. But right after that, you had hurricanes in Florida. Once you have many, many of these calamities coming up, the amount of resources available is going to be outstripped more and more and more by the need, right? So that's one concern. However, there are also creative opportunities. For example, instead of going the reparation route, it could be, people have suggested, something like a global tax on certain activities that are clearly polluting, like freight shipping, uh, like airlines, so that instead of saying you, Canada, you, United States, you, EU, because you have higher emissions, put money into this, you look at certain activities that are clearly highly polluting, and put some small tax on that, let's say, that goes into a fund. Uh, and that is both an incentive to reduce those polluting at- activities and meanwhile to create the resources to assist those who are
1: being affected. So you're talking about taxing private corporations and companies then?
4: Uh, that could be one, su- one suggestion, yes. Yes, and that, as you your, your question suggests, has problems of its own. We don't have a, a history of being very successful in taxing private activity for global purposes.
1: Right, this sounds like such a thicket um, that I'm really getting the impression from you that you don't see anything being done to help these people. I I mean, the other thing I suppose you would be looking to is this other global pledge, the, the $100 billion US fund for mitigation and adaptation promised in 2015, not yet delivered. Um, what does that say to you about this fund, and w- and whether it will fare any better?
4: You are being polite in your question, but you're <laughs> exactly right. It says to me this ain't happening. I've seen this movie 27 times, right? The important thing about COP27 is not COP, it's 27. This is the 27th consecutive time we have failed. I've spent a lifetime uh, following these meetings, and they have become a talk fest in that sense. This, they are in fact a graveyard of promises not kept. Um, there was in Morocco, for example, many years ago, three such funds established. Again, on developing country insistence. Uh, it's easy to establish a fund. Nearly none of them got nearly any money into them, right? So you can have a fund with zero dollars. That doesn't mean I've lost hope because I do think that. Global politics is sometimes that, uh, an art that requires appreciation of paint drying on a wall. But I am not holding my breath for countries just saying, okay, here is a pot of money, just take it and, and fix this. Uh,
1: it was interesting at, at this COP, and I hear what you're saying about it being a talk shop, but, but it did actually get this on the agenda. And the charge was led by Pakistan, your, your country, you were born there. Um, I'm wondering what you think of, of the difference that Pakistan's leadership made on this made in this because, it, because of what it had just come through?
4: I think it clearly made a difference and it clearly made a difference because of what it had come through. So um, I have been in Pakistan the last many months, uh, and this became a galvanizing issue first for Pakistan and then for developing countries. Uh, a, it was that we had just gone through these floods, which was this very visual, immediate, personal reminder of what climate impacts look like. It was no longer academic. The, but the real thing also was that Pakistan happened to be the head of something called the G77 this year. The G77 is the group of 77, but it's actually a group of nearly 140 countries, uh, developing countries, uh, in, in, in UN negotiations. So that gave Pakistan a platform and authority, uh, to assert that leadership. And therefore, this issue of loss and damage that had been there for a while sort of came to the fore. So in that sense, the Pakistan floods, uh, pardon the pun, were the perfect storm because the timing was right, both politically as well as for the issue. Uh, so, so things do move. Uh, and as I said, what I hold hope for is not, not the fund, what I hold hope for is that the issue of impacts has really become important.
1: Adil Najam, perhaps we'll check back with you in a few months and see how things are going and see whether you've managed to move from cynicism to skepticism or maybe even beyond that. <laughs>
4: I, I I will not lose hope. Okay, uh, hope, hope is the last thing we should lose. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
5: Do you want to go? Um, I go next. Okay. Hi, my name is Maria Clara Mateos. I'm an international student at Seton High School. I'm from Brazil, and I am 16 years old.
7: Hi, my name is Paulina Jimenez, and I'm from Mexico, and I'm 17 years old.
5: Hi, I'm Laia Carrion. I'm from Spain. I'm 16 years old.
1: Maria, Paulina, and Laia are exchange students at WH Seton High School in Vernon, British Columbia, They're among more than 100 high schoolers gearing up for the CARE Summit. On December first. CARE stands for Climate Action Ripple Effect. Students work in teams with mentors, working on projects ranging from mapping bees to solar-powered water heaters to conducting surveys with younger students about climate anxiety. As international students, these three teens have unique perspectives on climate change, combining life at home with the one they're living right now in Canada.
5: Climate change is going to affect our future lives. In my home country, Brazil, uh, it's a big, big problem. In this past four years, we had Bolsonaro in power, and he didn't really care about climate change back in Brazil. And as you guys know, Brazil has... Uh, the largest rainforest in the whole world and in the past four years it has been destroyed and that will affect um, every single human in this planet.
7: Well, in Mexico, pollution is really a big problem too. They are even destroying even more the environment and natural environments of the country. When I arrived here in September, I saw that the nature here was beautiful. Uh, But however, uh, there were like many fires at the time. It was summer. So you could see like all the smoke and how the temperatures were rising, even if that's not supposed to go that way.
5: Um, since I'm here in Vernon, I realized that a lot of people use their cars, even for short distances, when they could work. And I think that, that uh, doesn't help at all with the climate change crisis that we're actually facing. One of the main things I think that should be changed about the way that we live, it is how often do we use cars. I think much of that is based on how the cities are built. Um, if I could talk with the people in power, I will say to them that they have a lot of money and a lot of power in their hands, and they they are not using the money uh, well at all. I would like to tell them
7: that actually climate change doesn't only affect the environment or the place in which we live; it also like affects economy, people, and their quality of lives.
5: I get really anxious and thinking about that my uh, children may not have a place to call home and have not the same opportunities as I have. I want to live in a country that is gov- governed, governed. governed uh, by someone that believes in climate change and is taking action on it. I want to live in a country that is not too hot because if it's too hot now, imagine how it's going to be like in a few years. So that's a decision that we are going to have to start thinking about uh, as well in the future.
1: On Vancouver's North Shore, it's easy to forget the city by walking into the forests. This time, I'm in Lighthouse Park in West Vancouver, home to trees that are hundreds of years old. But I'm here to talk about a new way to plant trees, by using drones. This fall, as part of its promise to plant 2 billion trees, the federal government announced it's giving $1.3 million to a company doing just that. Flash Forest is one of several using drones to plant the seeds of a new forest. And the person I've come to meet is one of its scientific advisors. John, you're trying to give me a workout here.
6: Sorry, I was just kidding.
1: I I know, I'm kidding. I'll survive. So we can have a go. This is good. All right, John Innes knows the park well and he leads me up a trail. It's a bit of a steep trail to a quiet spot where we can talk more. He's a professor at UBC's Faculty of Forestry and the Forest Renewal BC Chair in Forest Management there. And full disclosure, while Innes isn't being paid by Flash Forest, he does hold a stock option in the venture. John Innes, hello.
6: Hello, nice to meet you.
1: Can you tell me, we are in Lighthouse Park today, can you describe for listeners uh, what it looks like here, what, what we're in the midst of?
6: What we are standing in is a coastal western hemlock forest. It is dominated by three trees species. One is Douglas fir, another is the western hemlock, and the other is the western red cedar. There are also some broadleaf trees around, such as bigleaf maple, The forest is about probably 400 to 500 years old, judging from the size of the trees. But forests are dynamic and the trees are always being replaced. So we can see some downed logs, which are from windstorms in the past. And there's also some fire damage on some of the trees.
1: Flash Forest is using drones to plant trees. I'm wondering what your reaction was when you first heard about the concept.
6: I was fascinated. Uh, There's a lot of work that's been done in places like Australia, where... Areas are reseeded from the air um, by broad scattering seed. That's a very expensive way of doing things. There's a lot of seed that is wasted. And the idea of actually having drones that could put the seeds in the right place at the right time was really interesting. And the technology is developing so fast that I think we're going to really see this take off in the future.
1: Tell me how this works.
6: Well, what it is, uh, a drone will have a hopper that's filled with little pellets. Each pellet has a seed together with some fertilizer and some other materials. And those pellets are actually dropped on the ground or fired into the ground, depending on what type of drone is being used. Um, so the drone is flying along and it will identify a particular site and it will drop or fire the seed into that site.
1: And you said fired into the ground. Why?
6: Well, get it below the surface of the ground. If you leave it on the surface, it's got less chance of germination and more chance of being predated by a mouse or an insect or something like that. If they can get it just below the surface, that's a much better place for the seed to germinate.
1: Well, that raises a couple of questions for me. If you're firing into the ground, then doesn't that risk possibly hurting wildlife?
6: Uh, the, The drones are flying very low to do that, because if you fire from high up, it's not going to go very far. And these are pellets. They're quite big. They're not fired very fast, They're, but it's faster than just using gravity alone. So any wildlife that's around, would firstly, they would hear the drone and probably move off. And secondly, the chances of actually hitting any form of wildlife is so small that I think it's a risk that's worth taking.
1: Now, I also want to ask you about what's in these pellets um, because I think you've referred to it as a secret, is it?
6: It's a proprietary mix because there are a number of different companies and they're measured on their success in terms of how well the pellets are germinating. So each company has their own little mixture. And also you want to try and change the mixture depending on the site conditions. So if you're in a very acidic site, you might want to make it a more alkaline mixture that goes into the pellet or vice-versa. The the pellet itself, it contains fertilizer, um, it contains a substance that will actually attract water and hold water, and there are also some other um, proprietary things within it.
1: (laughs) I was reading that Croatia um, has been doing something similar and part of Croatia's secret sauce, if you will, is chili. To keep wild boars from eating it, would chili be one of your secret ingredients?
6: As far as I know, they are not using chili, but it's not a bad idea. <laughs> um, I've certainly seen chili being used in bird feeders to try and stop squirrels.
1: Is there something in there though that because you said you don't want it to be eaten? Is there something in there that would deter things like mice from chomping down?
6: At the moment, there isn't. Um, essentially, the mice would be going after the seed itself, not the the mixture. And actually, the the worst time I suspect for these seedlings is once they actually germinate. So you've got the plant just beginning to stick its head above up up the ground, and that's when it's very easy to be predated. And that, that
1: brings me to some other challenges that I think you would have. Um, weather, uh, wind survivability, targeting, and and the winds with the targeting, are those still challenges?
5: Well,
6: the wind is a factor. We need to be aware on a very windy day, we may not get the pellet to hit where we exactly where we want it to go. But if it's very windy, we wouldn't be flying the drones anyway because of the potential danger of... Um, when picking up a drone and moving it or damaging it when it's coming into land.
1: So where are the best places for using
6: this kind of technology, for planting these pods? Firstly, the drones are ideal for getting into very inaccessible areas where tree planters can't go. So, for example, very steep slopes that might be quite dangerous for tree planters. Drones don't have a problem with that. The other area that I think is really optimal is where you've got the right ground conditions. If you go to an average clear cut in British Columbia, there's lots of debris everywhere, which makes it very difficult to actually fire a pellet into the ground as opposed to onto a tree stump or uh, onto debris. The areas where you get very little debris are actually areas where you've had big fires. And so you have a large area of very um, well-prepared soil, Uh, and a fine ash layer that you can fire the pellets into so I think the real opportunity here is in some of the areas that where we've seen very severe fires and those, those can be quite big which would be very expensive for tree planters and quite honestly a tree planter working in a fire site is going to have a lot of problems with dust and charcoal and we know charcoal can be carcinogenic so The drones are actually pretty good for that situation. This
1: isn't meant to replace traditional tree planting.
6: No, and I don't think it ever will. So tree planters needn't worry. However, today we really want to have more trees in the ground than we've ever done before. And I think the opportunity here that the drones provide is something that's going to be really important.
1: When I think about, though, traditional tree planting, they're planting seedlings that I think are up to two years mature. And I think of what you said about the, this, this seed sprouting into something that eventually pokes its head above the ground. Logic says to me that the seedling's going to have a better chance of survival than the seed that's planted by
6: drone. That's absolutely correct, um, particularly if you're using a three year old's seedling. And, and the, the older it is, the greater the chance of survival, but also the more expensive it is because they have to be grown somewhere, then they have to be transported. The bigger they are, the fewer the tree planters can carry. The tree planters can make sure they go into exactly the right site. They can get the roots into the ground, um, and the tree has a decent chance of getting away. With the pellets, there's going to be a much lower success rate. But the advantage of using drones is that you can go back the following year and fill in any gaps very cheaply. To send a tree planting team back would be very expensive.
1: It's, it's, so the, the seedling issue, especially for a government that's plant, uh, promised $2 billion, um, is a, sort of a supply chain issue then, I guess?
6: Well, I've been told the program is on time, and, but that came from the government. So <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that that's correct. Um, I don't think they are currently on schedule. Um, they have a lot of trees still to put in the ground. They've been making some announcements, generally in the order of a million or two million or 20 million. We're talking two billion trees. And they've now only got eight years left, I think, before their deadline. The difficulty that they have is getting the extra capacity in the nurseries and also finding the right locations. Because they've actually limited the number of locations that they're um, going to put the trees in. They're not putting them in uh, areas that have been clear-cut, for example. That's the responsibility of the companies. So there are certain areas that they've excluded, which is where most of the trees today would be planted. And they're trying to plant them in areas where, for example, there are no trees. An urban situation is an example. Um, And there you really need to have not just a two- or three-year-old commercial seedling, you're wanting a sapling. And that's going to be even more expensive.
1: So how are you able to tell whether the drone pellets have actually been successful and have taken root and are growing
6: right now because we're still in experimental phase to a certain extent although it's actually operational and there are a number of contracts being fulfilled we do go back and check uh, the following year for success because if we get the wrong site conditions or the wrong weather conditions when the pellets are being put in the ground then they may have a fairly high failure rate early on when it was being done for example the we were planting too late. So the summer basically had already in place. It was very dry and there was a very high failure rate. If we come back earlier, do it just after snow melt, for example, when the ground is quite wet, then you've got a much higher chance. Um, If you do it after rainfall, you've got a higher chance that you get the pellet into the ground because the ground's a bit softer and there's some moisture in the ground to enable the seed to get away. I think the combination of technology and our growing knowledge provides us with a lot of opportunities. The question is whether or not we can actually utilize those opportunities. John Innes, thank you very much. My pleasure.
1: Now, so far, the pods have had about a 30% success rate, but Innes believes that will improve. Now, if only I guy could find out about that secret sauce. <laughs> That's all for this week. The show was put together by associate producer Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. Special thanks this week to Amanda Putz. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.